0: I just wanted it to go back to normal. And so I think in my self-hate, this was not a smart move. I, I decided I'm going to, I'm going to start training more and I hurt my back. So three weeks after she got cut, I couldn't row and I was off the water. And I, in hindsight now believe I was sabotaging myself. If I couldn't outshine her and I felt so much guilt about it, like I'm going to I'm going to sabotage myself, hoping that would help the relationship get back to equilibrium, but it didn't. And that was probably the scariest time because the team was racing and getting faster. I didn't want to talk to anybody. I felt so much like I had let down. I felt revulsion. My Olympic dreams were slipping through my fingers and I couldn't power through it. I couldn't work my way through it. My body was saying no. It was so hard because I don't think I reached out to anybody. Nobody knew I was in such depression you know, it's just so much shame. Mary, my physical therapist, just was like, what is happening, friend? You know, something's going on. And I just burst into tears because nobody had really asked me how I was. That just people felt uncomfortable with that. And she said, you know, we're doing a lot to fix your body, but you got to fix what's going on in your head.
1: That's team dynamics expert and Olympic rower, Chris Marie Campbell. I'm Brian Felchuk. the do a day podcast, where you hear from the most inspiring people who have been through hard times, overcome them, and have turned around to help others with what they've learned. I'm your host, Brian Felchuk. I know because I've lived it myself. I've written about it in my book, do a day, and that's why I'm bringing you this show. Remember, today's a new day. Go out and do it. Hey, day doers. Welcome to another episode of the do a day podcast. I'm your host, Brian Falchuk, and I am here with the most amazing people with incredibly inspiring stories that we can all relate to because we all go through things. My guest today is Chris Marie Campbell. She's an Olympian. Pretty amazing, right? Can't relate to that, can you? And then you hear her story and you start to understand that Olympians go through things too. They have setbacks, they have struggles, they have dark moments before and after the Games, especially if they don't go the way that everyone assumes them to. And that's Chris's story. Chris went to the 1988 Seoul Olympic Games, the Summer Games, and uh, she was there as a rower. And, well, I'll let her tell the story, but while the Americans were the favorite to win gold, they didn't. And... When you dedicate as much of your life to that outcome as Chris Marie did and as other Olympians do, it's pretty, well, definitionally crushing, if that's a phrase to say the least. Today, Chris is a leadership and team dynamic speaker, author, and coach. She's one half of the Thrive, Inc. dynamic duo along with Susan Clark, and they're both pretty amazing. I love Chris's story. I'm so glad to bring it to you today. And this is a really important day for me personally. This is the day that my next book comes out. So you've been hearing me talk about it on the show, if you've been listening to the show. And if you haven't, you should be. You should subscribe so you don't miss episodes. But today, the fifty, seventy-five, 100 solution comes out. And it is so unbelievably important that you pick up a copy. Not just because obviously I want the book to do well. It's like my baby i want it to succeed and thrive in the world but it's because what this book is all about see the full title is the fifty seventy 100 solution build better relationships that's what it's about it's about building better relationships if the ideas in this book which have helped me and help people i coach tremendously if they help you in a similar way or maybe someone you care about that you give the book to Someone who you know is struggling with tough relationships or relationships that they don't feel are serving them and they don't necessarily know a way out. Or maybe relationships that aren't working well where it's just about blaming the other person and not seeing how you can affect change. Because you can't change the other person. You can only change yourself. But in doing that, you may affect a different version of them that can lead to a better relationship. That's Kind of the nugget behind the 5075 100 solution. If this book affects you or that person you care about in the same way it's helped me, it's helped people I work with, then what happens? Well, what happens is I don't just help you, I help the person or the people that you have relationships with. So while I loved my first book, and I still do, Do a Day was transformational. For me and for many others, and I'm so thankful for that. It helps the one individual person, primarily. Fifty seventy five one hundred moves beyond that, and it's about exponential change. Because if we are different in our relationships, we lead the other person to be different and to feel different and to be more positive and to feel more fulfilled in their lives. In addition to us feeling that way. So this book really excites me because of the exponential impact that I believe it can have but to do that it means you need to pick up a copy and i have done something really special just for the launch the Kindle version is just 99 cents right you can't beat that it's not even a dollar so head over to com slash Kindle and that's the numbers com slash Kindle and it'll take you straight through to the Amazon page where you can pick up that Kindle version for just 99 cents. And Amazon is kind enough to convert that to whatever local currency you happen to use. And if the link takes you or tries to take you to the American version of Amazon, you can just search for my name, Brian Falchuk, or the five one hundred solution in Amazon. And it'll take you to the book's page. You'll get the Kindle version. You also have access to the print version. The Audible version should be there, too, if you want to listen to it in audiobook. But look, if you're not a Kindle person, that's okay. It's out in every major format on every major platform. So I already mentioned some of the ones you can get it from Amazon in, Audible, eBook on Kindle, print. You can also get it from Apple Books, which used to be called iBooks, if that sounds more familiar to you. If you're an Android person, a Google person, you can get it on Google Play Books. You can get it from Barnes & Noble, both print and for their Nook e-reader. You can get it at the Kobo e-reader bookstore. You can get it all over the place. And you get it directly from Audible. Uh, You can also get it from Apple through iTunes, where you can also get audiobooks there. It's all powered by Audible, but different places you can get those books. And if you have an Audible subscription, Fantastic. You can go grab a copy and I'm pretty sure it's either a lot cheaper or they don't even charge you for it. I think you have credits that you can use anyway. Great way to take the book in. It's not expensive on any platform, but Kindle's that special price, 99 cents. Other ebooks, it's $6.99. The paperback is $11.99. Some stores will discount it. I've seen that one store has it for eleven forty-nine, another has it for eleven seventy-nine. It's a little bit all over the place. You can buy it directly from me. You can also get a signed version. And I personally sign these. I don't just write my name. I actually will write you a personal message. And I'll ship it right out to you. So the easiest place to go to is 5075100.com. Again, that's the numbers. You'll see a little green button to order the book. And remember, if you choose Kindle, you get it for just $0.99. Spread the word. That's how we get exponential better in this world. All right. Let's get back into the episode with Chris Marie Campbell and hear her really honest, open story of that struggle she went through. Chris Marie Campbell, thank you so much for joining me today.
0: Oh, I'm thrilled to be here.
1: Yeah, it's very exciting for me um, when I get to have people who, you know, have this huge success. They have it all. Everything's easy. Um, you know, at least that's the perception from the outside. And and immediately when we hear the word Olympian that is absolutely where a lot of people go. You you think of like the Michael Phelps of the world where it's like, well, look, he was kind of born to be the greatest swimmer. And, you know, Michael Jordan was born to be the greatest basketball player. And it was sort of like the genetics just made it so, and the hard work. And, and so it was all easy and perfect. Right. Um, (laughs) So that's your story is how easy everything (laughs) is.
0: Absolutely not. I, I, you know, I do a keynote and I come out and I say, I bet you think I'm going to talk about Olympic glory but what if I told you I found my spark through Olympic loss mm. and dealing with that? Cause we were expected to medal. I was in the 88 games in Seoul, Korea and expecting to medal. We'd gotten the silver medal the year before. And, and we, you know, we started the race and it was clear we were kind of trying to stay in it. And then we got to the end after a grueling race and look over and there, the victors are celebrating. Mm. And I was just crushed because, it just wasn't the way the story was supposed to go. Yeah. And I lost, I think two other times in my entire rowing career. And so it was a huge, I do not know how to process this. And I, I really, after the games, I just was like, I don't wanna talk about it, I'm yeah. a loser, get away. I had so much self-hate, it was horrible.
1: Oh, all right, we are gonna, we're definitely gonna dig into that. And there's, <laughs> for a lot of people who, who maybe have had a loss, it's one thing when it's just in that moment but when you start piecing together how many months or weeks or years probably in your case went into getting you to that moment and then it, and that's where there's this sort of existential like well, I just wasted everything like this mm-hmm. is not this is not the story the whole book up to this point is not this and it's mm-hmm. all it it leaves you incredibly empty and and this sort of identity crisis in a lot of ways um we'll get into that real okay. real quick um, I always start backwards. So what's, what's like the high level, of what do you do today? Um, what's your work these days?
0: Yeah, I'm a speaker an author coach, and consultant, and I spend my time really helping people. I work with a lot of organizations and business teams and really help them kind of show up as people and have real conversations, helping people find their voice and their in an organization, sometimes people are so intimidated, like, I can't really be me. And in a team environment, that's where you can create that trust and show up and have each other's backs and have the real conversation. And when they do that, they get to creative results that they never thought were possible. So that was that's our business book. And I also work with um, particularly couples and help mm-hmm. them have those conversations, too, because so many people you know, we're not, we don't talk about our relationship, so yeah. everything's fine. <laughs> yeah,
1: yeah. And
0: a lot of people are really struggling yeah. and wanting to have more fulfillment. So I help people find their voice and create fulfilling relationships
1: yeah, and lives. Di- different kind of team, but probably the most yeah. important one. Yeah.
0: Exactly. It's
1: always interesting to me when people try to separate like work from home life, like it's you, you come in the door and somehow you're a different person. Like, what you take in either direction will follow you through. So if it's not oh, working yeah. at home or it's not working at work, the other's probably not going to be great either.
0: It's true. I yeah. mean, we have the the whole Godfather business. It's not personal business. It's just per- business. It's not personal. Yeah. And we're like, well, no, you're, you know, you do your job for eight, 12 hours a day. It yeah. is personal. And to imagine that that's not going to affect your home life or vice versa. is crazy.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And of course, uh, not to start ragging on technology, but it follows you around 24 seven. Like work doesn't, you don't leave at five when the the whistle blows and Fred Flintstone goes down the brontosaurus is back. Like it comes right. with you night and day weekends. Yeah. yeah.
0: And then you're struggling like, no, pay attention to me. No, I've got to do this. Those, those tugs on either side yeah. of you.
1: Well, you certainly have that firsthand. I mean, your, your work <laughs> and your home life are completely intertwined. And especially when you work for yourself, mm-hmm. um, it's really easy to blur those lines dangerously or positively. It's a choice. Oh,
0: absolutely. Well, the good thing is that we specialize in conflict, dealing with conflict. So yeah. we're, we're in it. It's not like it goes away. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> So we get lots of practice.
1: Um, <gasps> all right. So I want to go back to the Olympic story and I will say when I, when I was first seeing about it, the thing that struck me was your height. Um, I grew up at a, I, I didn't row, but I was at a school with a lot of rowing on the Charles River in Boston, and everyone's super tall, except for the coxswains. And then I wasn't expecting your height to start with a five or end <laughs> with a single digit if it started with a five. And so I'm like, oh, wow, there's a – like, right away, I'm like, oh, yeah, there's a struggle. Um, Yeah, so how did you even end up rowing? Because I can't imagine people were like, we got to get her on the team.
0: No, they were not. They were not. Well, I actually – so – even earlier in high school, I wasn't an athlete. Mm. I mean, I took a jogging class and I got a C in that. And I think that was in 10th grade. I was a musician mm. and that I was in band as a band nerd <laughs> orchestra. And then I wound up in a flute quartet in my senior year. And that was incredibly competitive mm. and I, music became not very much fun. And I was trying to decide where to go to school for, you know, senior year, all that angst. And the Colonel wanted me to go to West Point and that my dad's the colonel yeah,
1: yeah I figured you're not talking about KFC <laughs> No, yeah.
0: no. and all I knew is I wanted to get far far away from the colonel yeah. and so I one day I was watching tv eating a bag of Doritos just to kind of numb the pain you know when you could eat a whole bag of Doritos yeah and I can't do that now yeah. <laughs> and uh I there's only one made flavor
1: food. of Doritos back then I remember it's just the red one <laughs> yeah
0: exactly and your fingers get all orange yes. and stuff yeah, yeah. <laughs> um But I was watching this made for TV movie, which, you know, they don't even have made for TV movies anymore, but it was this love story and it was filmed at the University of Washington in Seattle, which Mm. is one of the schools I had applied to, but I was on the East coast. I was in New Jersey. So that didn't seem very, you know, nobody knew what University of Washington was, Yeah. but it was this love story and she fell in love with him. He was a rower. They showed him, you know, in the collegiate eights gliding across Lake Washington, Mount Rainier. And all of a sudden I was like, oh. I want to go there and maybe I'll fall in love and be a rower. And you know, I had this whole different energy about it. Yeah. And not a week later, I got a flyer in the mail that said, Hey, if you're five foot eight or taller, come down to row. Yeah. Now I'm five foot six, but I didn't think they'd check. Yeah. And the first day I almost didn't go down, but I got, you know, my roommate's like, didn't you say you're going to do that rowing thing? So I went down there and there were a hundred and ten other women. Oh, wow. like, And th- this is before they had a lot of scholarships. And and these women, I mean, it's like my neck hurt from looking up because yeah. you're right. Like these were beasts. These weren't elite flute players. They were jocks and built and strong. Yeah. And and plus they knew rowing. I knew nothing of rowing. And the coach walked up to me and said, so do you want to be a coxswain? I didn't even know what that was. And the yeah. woman next to me said, you know, that's a short person that steers a boat. And I said, no, I want to <laughs> row. Yeah. And without a word, she turned and walked away, I kind of looked disgusted. Yeah. But I was so enamored and I didn't I didn't have anything to lose. I had no fear of sports because I hadn't been in sports. So mm. I just, you know, I had to g- get in shape and and then I remember the uh, I was so there's 110 of us. There's a lot. So half goes out with the head coach and half goes out with the assistant coach. And I had been going out with a head coach, so I thought it was all that. Yeah. And then, um, I got booted down to the assistant coach and at this point I had some attitude and I was like, well, why am I with you? <laughs> and she, you know, I was, I was young
1: yeah.
0: <laughs> and she just, she looked at me and she said, listen, you're a squirt. You're not, you'll be lucky to do anything in this sport. And if you do, you've got to lose the attitude. You got to figure out how to make boats go fast and work with a team. And I was like, whoop, okay. And I did. I just started working hard and figuring it out. And, um, I'm, I'm gifted with strength. I'm not gifted with height. I'm gifted with rhythm. I, I have a good rhythm. Yeah.
1: In the musical yeah. background paying yeah. off there. Yeah. And
0: my family were dancers and things. So, and then I learned in winter quarter, there were only going to be eight of us that were going to make that boat. And I'm like, oh my goodness, that is so unfair. What are we chopped liver? You know, yeah. we don't get to race, but I decided I was going to, I was going to make that boat however and uh I and can i did
1: you, i gotta ask you something in this there's two things that you've said now when i'm like why did you keep pushing so when you had that moment with the coach a lot of people's response would be kind of like forget you you know kind of give an attitude back and walking off
0: you mean with the assistant coach yeah I'm sorry like, with
1: the, the assistant coach. coach yeah and obviously yeah. like i don't know how she said it to you whether it was kind and helpful or kind of like listen you got to grow up you got to do this and you're nothing um Which is more how I'm hearing in my head. Maybe it wasn't. Yeah.
0: No, it was more at the second.
1: Yeah. So, I mean, that's a moment where I think a lot of people, regardless of age, but especially in their, you know, mid to late teens and into their early 20s would be like, you know, screw you, I'm leaving. Mm -hmm. But then also to then subsequently face that, like from 110 or whatever was left at that point to eight and be like, well, this is pointless. Forget it. I'm just going to split. Why do you keep... Why did you stay there? Why did you choose, especially in that first case, to be like, oh, I'm going to work harder. I'm going to do this.
0: You know, she did have more of an attitude. And I was like, whoop. I knew I wanted, I knew I wanted, uh, something had ignited. I was in this group of people. Mm-hmm. So I wasn't alone. Because, you know, going to a university, 20,000 people, and i had, I had somehow made that smaller, even though it was 110, being a part of this yeah. rowing crew. And so I was a part of something. And I liked the teamwork. It, it At that point, it didn't feel like we had this pecking order. It felt yeah. like we were all in this together. And she was giving me kind of a path mm. because I was perplexed, like, wait a minute, I'm not there. And I want to be. Mm-hmm. And she was saying, well, this is the way you're going about it. it isn't working. So she gave me a path through and I am nothing but a hard worker. I'm a hard worker. I mean, my dad used to say, my dad is, you know, there's a story about that, but he always said, you know, you're gonna get ahead by learning to listen and work harder. Work hundred and ten percent. So yeah. I had that kind of in my DNA to work hard. Okay. So I'm that sure was he probably expected
1: that day to day. Oh god. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, yeah. I mean the fact that you yeah. refer to him as the colonel.
0: Right. Yeah. Oh yeah. Everybody does.
1: Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um I just I find that really interesting though. Um, that kind of a the maturity of it. And be the the dedication and the hard work that comes out. Um, and at, what I find is a lot of people, especially when they're younger, when they exhibit it, they're not necessarily totally clear on why they're that way versus not. And obviously you have the influences, but I think that's, to me, that's like one of those first moments where we're showing that we have the right to choose. Mm-hmm. You know, because like, a lot of people would not choose that response, or wouldn't view it as a choice. Like, well, she said these things to me, and they were nasty, and so, or she was condescending, or whatever, and so, of course, I got pissed off and left.
0: Right. So, well,
1: you could. Yeah. But yeah, I mean, to see that it's about you and what you could do.
0: Hmm. I uh, think you know. I, I think it's also. And this has showed up in the psychology of my Olympic coach. <laughs> so this may say more. I remember he he used to put me down, and I'd be like, "I'll show you." Mm. So he knew it worked. In hindsight, I can see that. He told he we had to do this running race, and he needed a front person to to be the rabbit, basically. And somebody said, "Oh, have Chris Marie do that." And he's like, "She can't do that. Well, you know I won that race." Mm-hmm. Like, so that sort of reverse psychology, probably because of the colonel, Yeah, just worked on me.
1: Was he trying to do that? Or did he genuinely mean it? No, he knew.
0: No, I think he knew. This is in hindsight, I'm I'm guessing. Um, I just saw him about a few months ago, and he definitely had a lot of respect for me. I never knew that because he never said those things to me. He was always kind of putting me down, so I'd I'd rise up, sort of thing.
1: Um, Totally aside, but his name wasn't Ken, was it? No. Okay, because no. I, I one of my math teachers was the women's crew uh, Olympic crew coach, but I think it was later. I th- oh yeah, this is probably in the nineties.
0: Yeah, he was in eighty. Yeah, yeah. He, so he's it was, Bob. yeah.
1: All right. Yeah. Anyway, yeah. To another Too- another kind of like straightforward name: Ken, Bob, Mike, I- <laughs> John. Yeah, but not him. Yeah. The only reason is because like I could never see Ken doing that. He would oh, never okay. like want to use psychology to manipulate someone to not that it's a bad thing, but like he wouldn't do that.
0: No, they've actually now like the Olympic coach now is much cares about the whole human being. Mm. Back then they used us up and spit us out Mm. and it was not really a very
1: kind. Yeah. It got results, but at what cost?
0: At what cost? Yeah. Yeah.
1: Humans, it's it's not that big a deal. (laughs) right? (laughs) It's only people. Right. Um, okay. So, so we're down to the eight. You make the So, eight. yeah,
0: I did. I, well, so a way that they choose rowers is they do seat racing. So every in spring break, when everybody's going to Fort Lauderdale, the crew teams usually stay and do seat racing, which is they take two boats and race them and then they pull them together. And if you and I, we'd switch seats and race again. And if you made the other boat go faster, you would have mm. won that seat race it seemed crazy to me that they were doing this <laughs> like, well, who's th- they? other people could be throwing the race, but you never knew who they were going to call. So, right. and I got, um, they called, I was in the second boat and they called my name and I switched with this giant woman. I mean, <laughs> she was six, three, 180 pounds. And you know, like she put her hand on my face while she's crawling over me. I'm sure trying to intimidate me. Yeah. But, um, we raced and because I, I think I had smoothness in my, like she was big, but clunky yeah. and that makes boats go slower. Yeah, It doesn't translate. So mm. I was smooth and the rhythm and made the boat go faster.
1: Well, so and probably I less weight as well, which yeah, so much of it boils down. You,
0: well, you want weight in the middle of the boat. They call it the engine room. They're uh, bigger, they're stronger. They've got more leverage cause they're taller. Okay. But if you're kind of putting, negative friction in the boat, it makes it go backwards. So, and we won Pac-10s that year. It was a really great. And so I was Uh hooked.
1: (laughs) So you're a superstar rower now. How do you get to the Olympics from there?
0: I just kept wanting more. So uh, I made the varsity as a sophomore at Washington, which is, it can be rare. Yeah. And then I wanted to learn how to be the stroke or the leader of the boat, the person that everybody follows setting the rhythm. So I asked an upper classmate over the summer, could she teach me how to row in a pair? And we did that. And I became the stroke of the Washington eight where we won national. So we won nationals twice in the uh, collegiate nationals. And then I went on to the national team and we won. This is where we weren't supposed to medal. And this team, we really connected. We bonded together well and this is when we hadn't beaten the Russians in like 15 years. Cause mm. you know, you had those times in 80 and 84 where they weren't, yeah. we or they weren't coming. Yeah, And so uh, we got to the world championships and the Russians were on the inside lane cause they were dominant and they had smooth water. We were on the outside choppy water and the race started and the Russians just took off like a whole boat length and the rest of the crowd was trying to catch up to them and halfway through the race, the coxswain says, we're moving on the Russians. And our boat just picked up and we moved seat by seat through the Russians. In the end, Romania won gold, but we won silver. We are all so happy yeah, to you it. You won
1: silver against the Russians.
0: Yes. It was like, what? Yeah, yeah. It was great. This big Romanian woman picked me up in her arms and picked another U.S. rower up <laughs> in her arms. It was great.
1: I'm trying to think if this is Russians or Soviets at that point. It just... was before the wall came okay, down. So they're still Soviets. Okay. So, like, from a national pride standpoint, that's a really big deal.
0: I know. Yeah. And they they were so dominant; nobody beat the Russians. Yeah. Now, meantime, the race got twice as long. We used to race three minutes, a thousand meters, and then the women's race got to two thousand meters. And I don't know, depending on what they were doing in their training, if they, you know, they were short burst versus
1: yeah, yeah. a little bit more steady. endurance. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm not going to accuse them of doping, but <laughs> doping can be very helpful with the short burst stuff. And especially if that's what you train, it, ultimately it's what you train for because yeah. you train so intensely at that level. Mm-hmm. Um, but that's, that's another podcast. Um, <laughs> so that, that, how did you feel coming out of that? Was it, was there any sense of vindication where you focused on not getting gold or was it just like, we weren't expected to do anything and it was them and we beat them at like,
0: it was total joy. Yeah. Absolutely joy and satisfaction. And it was such a yeah, it was, I it never felt like losing. That, even though I was we were silver, it just felt such a, a huge accomplishment. Yeah. It was a yeah, happy moment.
1: So when but is I, that's the year before the Olympics? Mm-hmm. Okay.
0: So then I was going in. Now we had proven ourselves and and I was setting up to be the stroke of the boat because I I had actually technically I could be the stroke, but I was young when we were in 87, I'd never been on the world stage. So I was in the bow, but I was competing for the stroke seat with my best friend. And and if I had to beat anybody, I had to beat her. Mm -hmm. And then the coach comes in, in six months before the games, games are in September, this is March. And he said, this is after we've had two workouts where we've been lifting weights, I mean we're, you know, really exhausted. And we didn't know he was going to do this. He said, Hey, if I read your name off, you can come back tomorrow. Otherwise, don't bother. Uh And now this wasn't the whole Olympic squad. This is just the Seattle training squad. Yeah. And he read my name off and I was like, and he didn't read my best friend's name off. And for a split second, I was like, yay, I
1: won. Oh, yeah.
0: In my mind. And then I looked at her. And of course she was shocked and devastated. Oh, and I felt so much guilt and shame as if I had personally cut her myself. Yeah. And so that was devastating to me because she didn't want to talk to me. Of course, she's, you know, in her own pain and failure. Yeah. And, ugh. and I, I just wanted it to go back to normal, you know, like, Oh my gosh. And so I think in my self hate, this was not a smart move. I, I decided, Hey, cause I'm going to, I'm going to start training more. This is the start of racing season, but I decided I'm going to start powerlifting, which is a dumb move. I didn't talk to the coach, found a new trainer, a different gym. This isn't the time to bulk up when you're racing. It's more endurance. And I hurt my back. So three weeks after she got cut, I couldn't row and I was off the water. And I, in hindsight now, believe I was sabotaging myself because, you know, that upper limit that Gay Hendricks talks about. You know, if, if I couldn't outshine her and I felt so much guilt about it, like I'm going to, I'm going to sabotage myself, hoping that would help the relationship get back to equilibrium, but it didn't. She, you know, really didn't want to talk to me. And that was probably the scariest time because she's not talking to me. This didn't go off for a week. This was like a month and then another month, three months. And the team was racing and getting faster. She wouldn't talk to me. I didn't want to talk to anybody. I felt so much like I had let down. I felt revulsion, like my Olympic dreams were slipping through my fingers and I couldn't power through it. I couldn't work my way through it. My body was saying no. And that was, um, um, it was so hard because I don't think I reached out to anybody. Nobody knew I was in such depression. And one day I went in, they had, they had given me pain pills for my back. Yeah but I was tough so I wasn't going to take them. And then at one point I thought, wow, well I could take them. Yeah. I could take the whole bottle and that would make this a lot easier, oh, you know. Yeah. I, just so much shame. Yeah. Um but I wound up having to go to my PT appointment. You know, I saw the clock and I thought, okay, I'll take these pills when I get back. And I walked in and Mary, my physical therapist just was like, "What is happening, friend?" You know, Something's going on, and yeah. I just burst into tears because nobody had really asked me how I was. Yeah. That just people felt uncomfortable with that. And she said, "You know, we're doing a lot to fix your body, but you got to fix what's going on in your head." Yeah, and I was just a blubbering, you know, mess of tears. And then she handed me. She goes, "I don't know if this will help, but I'll." I'll she handed me a copy of the Mental Athlete, and. I got home and I just chucked it on the table next to the pills and I must have walked by that table, you know, 25 times. And then the 26th one, I picked up the book and I read it that night. I was, and it, mm-hmm. it talks about training, even though you're injured, training your body at a neurological level using visualization. Mm-hmm. And I was like, okay, finally something I can do. And so I made a tape of the rowing, you know, my stroke, my legs exploding, my body opening and And, uh, I listened to that thing over and over and over again. And, and then they actually called me. They said, Hey, do you want to come to the Olympic tryout selection camp? It was starting in mid June. And I just was like, yes, I didn't care what I was going to do to my back. I was going to row because I didn't want to wait four more years.
1: Did you feel like you had come through that? Like, did you have another moment where you looked at that pill bottle or did you have more dark times or was it really post reading that book that you, maybe, maybe even post just the outlet. Yeah, of, you're probably right, yeah. Brian.
0: I mean, just actually letting myself cry and, and being witness with somebody, that yeah. sense of connection, because I was isolating so much. And I think people in depression and despair just get farther and farther away from people. And it's that human contact that actually helps let us know we're not alone. We're not crazy. Yeah. But I could, I had something to do because, Before then I could only go to PT and swim in the pool Mm -hmm. and then be in my apartment. I remember being in my apartment, looking at the ceiling fan, you know, just laying on the floor, like, what who am I? I've got no worth as a human being is what was going on in my head.
1: And this is your full time. You weren't you weren't working otherwise. This was your training and
0: I had just I had just quit in March to train full time. So I'd lost my job, lost my best friend, lost the team. And you know really didn't have a connection to anybody else my my parents thought rowing was a waste of time so they sure. weren't really supportive so yeah so once i had the visualization i had at least something to do it had kind of reignited me um but you know i had to i had to climb I had to start at the bottom of the pack and seat race my way up. And when I I was seat racing for the last seat in the boat, the Olympic eight, the coach just didn't believe that I was making the boat go faster. So he kept testing me and that was hard. He kept testing me and testing me. And I, every time I made that boat go faster. So I have that to hold on to.
1: (laughs) But I mean, it is, it is really interesting to pause on the bottling up and, Whether it's because of shame or because there's a view of us as this tough person, whether that's external or how we see ourselves um, or thinking that no one's there for us or, you know, here's not a random person, but, you know, it's, it's not like one of your parents. It's not your childhood best friend. It's not any of these people who would be in those roles of kind of lifelong support. Just goes to show like there are people all over the place that would support you if you would support yourself enough to speak.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And I don't think I never felt like I, at least on the outside, I didn't think of myself as a really tough person because I'm emotionally sensitive, but I did think I, it was more a process of hating myself and feeling like I was worthless because Mm. I had so linked my identity with winning and being in the Olympics. Yeah. And without that, it's kind of, they even have a program for Olympians, all of us afterwards called the Olympic blues. Um, the USOC puts it on Olympic committee because after that, it's kind of like, who am I? Yeah. Like even, even people that win medals, maybe they get fame, but maybe they don't. And it's like, what do I do now?
1: Yeah. So it's actually a really common issue. Um, with retirement in general, I've talked about mm-hmm. this in a number of episodes here, but um, specifically pro athletes, um, like people who there's a a guy who retired from the NFL and he's one of the hosts of American Ninja Warrior. It's awesome, um, <laughs> but that's that's one of the key struggles that he talks about in the book. Is after you know injury ended his career effectively, he ended up getting cut, but you know, it's always injuries standing in the way and it's like, I can't play anymore. No one will have me. Who am I?
0: Mm-hmm. And it's a
1: really, really tough moment. And I see it, you know, people that I coach that are facing retirement and just fighting it with every ounce of their being. Cause they're like, I, you know, that's all they've known of themselves. Um, so I imagine like pro sports, pro athletes, it's even stronger.
0: Yeah. Um, I think he, even, um, Boeing, I was a flight test engineer at Boeing and the retirement, like most, like, I think it was, they had a lot of men. So they had a lot of data that the men who retired usually only lived like two years Mm -hmm. because you're so, you have this purpose, you're out in the world, you're engaged. And then now what, you know, so I can see it with pro sports and just any regular Joe that has been working so long.
1: Any kind of life-defining identity, uh, same thing, like there's tons of studies on spouses, when one dies, how long until the other dies. Um, yeah. Guinea pigs are like that. Really interesting. <laughs> yeah, if you have more than one <laughs> guinea pig, at least have three is the rule that I've heard. Because if you just have two and one dies, the other one will die. I think it's like within days oh, or, or weeks sad. that they, yeah, and they're like super blue and oh. it's not just I mean, humans.
0: No. And I think, you know, when somebody is going through this whole thing about depression, if when, when there's not like a support group, that's letting the person know you're more than this, yeah. like you still have to walk the dog or you're still, you know, like it can be simple things that pull us out of that depths of despair. And I think you're like another piece is having somebody, even a stranger
1: Yeah.
0: care makes yeah. a difference. So don't hesitate to ask somebody how they're doing yeah. if you're worried about yeah. them.
1: Yeah. You just need someone to see you, mm-hmm. but sometimes yeah. you need to ask. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I know. Um, I, It is pretty amazing that the lack of length of time between that appointment and making the boat. That-
0: yeah. It was probably, um, probably it was in the, it was in the third month. So I think I had done the the visualization thing for a couple of weeks before I got the call and then it was I got actually the boat got set a month before the game. So Mm. it was August when I got in the boat.
1: It's a pretty quick turnaround from that level of depth.
0: Yeah, it was.
1: um, To that level of pride, really.
0: Well, yeah, I was very excited. But then when we got to the games, you know, we lost. And so then I went right back down into the (laughs) depths of despair. Like, oh, my gosh, I made the boat. I came back and then we didn't win. And I literally walked away. I put down my oar. I didn't talk to my teammates. Anybody who asked me about the games, I'm like, I changed the subject. And it wasn't literally, I, and anytime the games were on, I would be crying. I couldn't watch the games. And then I met Susan, my my wife now, and she, she was so excited to talk to me because I was an Olympian. And I just said, no, stop it. I don't want to talk about that. And she was like, why? And t- I said, I'm a loser. And she literally laughed in my face this is like the first time I'm meeting her laughed in my face and said, you got to change that story. Cause if you're a loser, what does that make the rest of us?
1: Oh.
0: And, uh, it was enough of a, again, like yeah, the coach enough up. of, yeah, that I, I decided, okay. And I got a coach and I started working on, you know, re kind of claiming that experience. Um, cause I I'd shoved everything in the closet about it. Mm. And, uh, And I reclaimed a lot of happy memories from that. Like when we went down to LA before the games and in rowing, you get a t-shirt. That's all you get. That's the only gear. (laughs) But when you're an Olympian, they brought us to this big ballroom and they gave us a a shopping cart. And you had these booths, like you went and got Calvin Klein underwear and jeans and topsider shoes and, you know, the parade uniforms, the casual uniforms. And I mean, my eyes were big as saucers, like things like that. I remembered. Yeah. And, and even being in the village and being with athletes, it felt like in a utopia because everybody respected each other, whether you got a medal or not Yeah. people like I'd sit next to this is before the wall came down, like the West German bikers and then the Swiss, you know, gymnast or whatever it was yeah. you just were accepted. And that felt really neat.
1: Yeah. I can um, imagine there's a lot to connect with, with all the athletes in a way that you know, so many people around them in their lives normally outside of training wouldn't understand. And the flip right. side is there's all the competitiveness. So it's, I've, I've always been curious, like, does one win out? And maybe it varies by games, whether people are more like the camaraderie of being amongst people who get it, who, you know, have dedicated in the same way versus like, yes, but we're supposed to destroy them tomorrow. <laughs> like I, can I have dinner next to you?
0: Right. Well, we weren't, I wasn't sitting next to the rowing teams. All right. So just maybe that's why it was Okay. <laughs> Although I, you know, it's not like I was avoiding them, but it is kind of a little bit, you know, yeah, I was sitting next to the other sports and, uh, and it it felt really welcoming. Mm. And actually, even the West, we had used an experimental boat, which is part of the problem, but the West Germans, they, they didn't make the final and they're like, here, use our boat. And um, so that was really like those things felt really neat Mm. that they were willing to help us even though they didn't make the final to did try you to guys use their boat. We did. We, we, switch. we, the, the experimental boat we used in the, in the heats finally got dropped and it wasn't, you know, this was a boat that was designed on a computer. It was yeah. structural, and that's not how you pick racing boats. They, they take racing boats that keep winning and then they create a mold of it. Yeah. That's the boat building business, at least back then. Yeah. And, uh, this boat was really hard to set up and row and we made a quick decision to use it. And they scrapped that boat. They cr- scrapped that design. Yeah. And even I, I just talked to my teammates that weren't in the boat, but the, we, they were training next to us. And they said, oh, we saw you guys. This is in Seattle. We saw you getting slower and slower. And I'm like, why didn't you yeah. say anything? Oh my gosh. I think it was the, the oh, let's use this new, this newfangled yeah. thing. The US that- has
1: not learned that lesson. If you remember the speed skater uniforms a few years ago, (laughs) that like they had all kinds of problems. Like Under Armour had designed these amazing things in a wind tunnel, and yeah, they had all kinds of problems, and everyone was slower. And so they ended up, I think, cutting the hoods off. I don't remember what they did, but they had to make some last minute, like with a pair of scissors adjustment. Oh my gosh. They just weren't working. Yeah.
0: And I mean the in eighty four, in eighty three, they tested the boat they were gonna use in eighty four at the world championship. So yeah. they used a whole and here we are the last minute. Yeah. It was it was a dumb, dumb decision.
1: Wow. So yeah. Um I get, yeah, there, there's like this uh this need to have the technological advantage and it's like, well, we did it with computers. So it yeah. must be so better. It be good. Yeah. yeah. Like you're yeah. just doing through iterative design and like taking a mold of a winning boat. That's that's like the 1700s yeah I know um yeah sometimes there's nothing wrong with that (laughs) so um, I don't want to make this about me but I had a similar experience that uh my I've done one marathon I call it my first not my only because there will be more um Mm -hmm. but it didn't go well And it Mm -hmm. was, you know, I trained for five months and I just happened to get some kind of bug a couple days before and I didn't know if it was just nerves and, you know, now I'm in a hotel in Chicago, I'm not in my bed, maybe that's why I'm not sleeping. Like, I had an excuse for it. And of course, it's like, you're just nervous Mm
0: -hmm. or you're
1: anxious or whatever, which is totally understandable and it probably was, but I ended up having a fever and, you know, other stuff. I did the race, but I kept like... I was struggling. I kept eyeing the medical tent. I'm like, I don't know if I'm putting myself in danger. Like, should I actually be taking myself out? Is it just because this is too much for me? And um, I finished an hour and, uh, yeah, maybe like an hour behind where I definitely should have. And maybe mm-hmm. like an hour and 20 behind where I could have if I was at my peak. Mm-hmm. Um, and I just was crushed emotionally. Oh, yeah. Like I, I saw someone snapped a picture of me on the side. and I'm like, eh. Yeah, it's like five months, which is nothing by comparison, but you know, people ask what? me like, Oh, it's about how'd it go. And I'm like, uh, oh, really didn't, <laughs> like, I didn't want to talk about it. And my wife's like, what's wrong with you? Like right. you just did a marathon and like, most people haven't like, just tell them it went well, or like, you sound like you're not grateful. Mm-hmm. And I was like, I'm really struggling with it. Mm-hmm. Um, so I got this little sliver of maybe some of what you were feeling and it's, oh, it's yeah. crushing. It's crushing. Yeah, it is crushing.
0: Yeah, Yeah, it is. It's kind of like, oh my gosh. So I I think it's not a sliver. It's definitely a very similar experience and it's hard to kind of make sense of it. And I didn't have those skills. So I I don't know how you dealt with it. I didn't talk about it for 10 years. I
1: blogged about it, but blogging hadn't been invented yet.
0: (laughs) Yeah. Oh, that's smart. Yeah. I mean, I I just,
1: I knew I had so much to work through. Yeah. Um, I know. And it's, I mean, look, and I ended up, one of the chapters in my book is about it. So it took me probably two more years until I felt pride when I said I did it instead yeah. of like having to immediately follow up. I did a marathon with, but you know, it went I so totally, horribly in this. Yeah. I totally get that. I, I like a fraud.
0: I just two years ago, if I turned around, you'd see my Olympic tattoo because it, and it was, so this is almost what? almost, it was almost 30 years ago. And I, after the games and I finally got an Olympic tattoo cause I finally was like, I am an Olympian. I it's behind me, but it'll always be a part of me. But that same idea, yeah. like feeling pride, I had so much self-hate that I wouldn't let myself feel anything like yes. that. So yeah. it's been, it's accumulated. Yeah. So
1: have, have you struggled with that in other aspects of your life as well? Or is it really just tied to the rowing?
0: You know, I, when I was getting ready for this keynote and I was talking about how I started rowing and I found that when I ran into difficulty, I would just sh- shove things in the closet mm. and that the pattern, I didn't know back, I didn't grow up learning how to talk about my feelings sure. or process. That was the colonel.
1: Yeah, yeah. The
0: colonel was pretty explosive and I, every night at dinner was like running the gauntlet, hoping he wouldn't explode. Mm. So I started to become a pleaser and an achiever. So what do you want me to do? And I'll become that. So I really lost touch with who I was and what I wanted and how I felt. And I didn't know how to process that. And so that's been really after the games, I literally went to PT and I went to, you know, a therapist and I started my work and then really reclaiming the Olympics. But learning how to process. Yeah. These feelings that we have all the time that are that are there for some good reason. And that's what I help people do now is like recover from failure and regain a sense of their resources and who they are. Cause there's it's it's such a waste otherwise.
1: Yeah. Well, I want to ask you about some of the mechanisms that you think were the most beneficial to you in that. But one of the things I'm really curious about is you described yourself as a pleaser before after doing the work and everything, would you still say you're the same person or have you changed your style? Would you not classify yourself as a pleaser anymore?
0: You know what I started to do? I was such a pleaser that, uh, all I was, was my work and mm. I wound up, I was at Boeing and then I went and got my MBA and worked at Arthur Anderson, which is a top tier at the time yeah. consulting. And it was, and I had no hobbies It's work, 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 work. And what I started to do after processing the games is I started to have more of like, well, wait a minute. I actually love dance. So I started hip hop dancing. I started painting. I started acting. Mm -hmm. I'm in community theater. So I found more of me and started to enjoy life more. So sure. Do I want you, do I want this to be the best podcast ever? Of course, you know, everything is about like doing a high performance, yeah. but I have now, I know that I'm more than my performance. I know that I have people that love me. Yeah. I tell people about my, my successes and my struggles. So there's more of me that, um, helps me recover quicker and bounce, bounce back and know that this is just one aspect of life, not the whole thing.
1: Yeah. I asked just out of the idea of whether we have to change who we are, um, you know, to get through these things and that not exactly, you know, not in that sense of things, you can still be you, um, mm-hmm. but maybe it's, you're not, you might still be a pleaser in, in many aspects or want to perform at that level. So people are pleased with what you've done, but one of those people now is you.
0: Exactly. You know? I, I I was thinking about that. Like it. it is, I care. Yes. Like how it feels for me, I'm not willing to sacrifice and not care about how it feels for me. So you're right. One of those people is me and, and I have a higher ranking,
1: <laughs> yeah. which is good. Yeah. 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 Self, self-worth. Um, mm-hmm. I, I think it's kind of the most, or it's, it's the first thing we always need because everything else we do ends up not mattering Yeah, because you don't bring it in because you don't, you don't see the value in doing that or the capability of using what you brought in.
0: Right. I mean, Yeah. I think I used to think fulfillment was about pleasing you and achieving. And now I know it's really about how alive I feel and the Mm -hmm. spark that I have. Sure. I want those results, but really the juice that keeps me going is how I feel inside.
1: Yeah. I like that. Okay. Mm -hmm. So some of the things that you think have been crucial in helping you you know, through that therapy, through the processes you've done, how have you looked at, at yourself differently, your achievements and struggles, but not like you didn't say failures, mm-hmm. you know, successes and struggles. Um, yeah. What, what do you think practice-wise or mindset-wise or really anything has been the most valuable?
0: I think one of the things that I recognize is I had to settle into me and my body. I was so kind of out focused on the field, making scanning, making sure I was pleasing people. And I physically had to land in my body, become more embodied through breath, through just even feeling like even now feeling my feet and my seat and bringing that in. Cause our bodies are huge resources that we don't, we don't use. We think we try to settle everything up with our head and also breathing and allowing my feelings and being motivated. Our feelings which are located their energy and motion in our trunk and, you know, basically in our body and recognizing they're there for some good reason and turning towards them and processing them has been huge for me. And then also I, I don't know if you've heard of Dr. Sarno and TMS or mind yeah. body syndrome. Yeah, I was a big mind body syndrome. I have all the personality traits for it. And so I had back pain, I had shoulder pain, gut issues, skin issues. And when I started actually talking to my brain and saying no, I'm no longer to be intimidated or distract I spent uh almost 30 years not being able to work out. Now I can lift weights. I don't have to worry about my body cuz I know it's just my it was my brain that was mm. doing these learned nerve pathways. So, dealing with chronic pain from a brain aspect and also an emotional aspect. I've done a lot of mind body work. I'm a mind body coach. So, those have been some of my kind Of crown jewels and learning how to say what I want, finding my voice because yeah. I didn't do that growing up. So yeah. now I speak up, I let myself get angry. Um, those are all things that were taboo in yeah. my childhood
1: and probably unsafe because mm-hmm. they would spark a reaction that, yeah, could be was big, yeah. yeah,
0: yeah, it was detrimental. I
1: it's uh, it can be really scary sometimes to face those mechanisms in us and see that, like my my uh my mother-in-law had a had a very pretty but nasty cat like <laughs> she and she would like lay across the hallway and wouldn't let you pass and you just get hacked to pieces like she would oh my gosh she was nasty um she's she's passed away so i can now move about their house more freely but i used to love cats i had a cat growing up um you know i could cuddle with a cat like super easy um But after a few years of having this cat in my life, I found myself, I went to a friend's house, they had a cat, and I'm like cowering in the corner because I've been trained like it's not safe to be around them. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah, I mean, we you know, something as simple as that, but then think about you grew up for 20 years or however long with these sorts of structures and these pathways to danger. Mm -hmm. Whether you recognize it or not, that's wiring how we react and respond and choose in different situations. I can be a lot to face.
0: It is. I mean, even in my, we did a Ted talk about conflict, use Mm -hmm. it, don't diffuse it. And I talk about my dad, I got angry and he, he picked me up and he just started punching me in the face. And I was so terrified. I was 12. I peed in my pants. I mean, it was like, and that is a big T, you know, and getting over that wiring. But I had to recognize I could let my nervous system control me or I could intervene on my own behalf. And that's a lot of what my personal work has been about is being bigger than my nervous system and finding ways to interrupt it and come down and developing a sense of safety because Susan, my partner, isn't going to hit me, nor is my boss, nor, you know. But that's what we project out on the world through the big scary cat, the pretty scary cat with every other cat. So interrupting that.
1: Yeah, and the problem for us is it's not wrong. Don't invalidate it. It's oh, trying gosh. to protect you. Mm-hmm. And you can't, like that is the wiring of the, like in the core of our brain, the lizard brain, the prehistoric right. brain, the rational brain knows better, but it's not as quick to respond and control, you know, what you feel in your limbs about fleeing yeah, um, or what may come out of your mouth. So it's, it's having the right triggers to bring that rationality into the scene to tell you like, okay, you felt this way for good reason but you're okay. You're safe. You can say what you believe. You can feel this way about something. You can walk out.
0: Yeah. Uh, I always say, um, it's, that was then, and this is now. And, and a lot of times I'm still responding the same way. So it's also about recovery. Like, okay, I couldn't speak up. So I'm going to now have this conversation now that I've regained my sense of safety and resources inside of me. That's how I'm going to approach it. Yeah.
1: There's a very clear self-compassion in your voice as you talk about all this. Mm-hmm. I think it's probably the the biggest piece is like, yeah, pleasing yourself first, right? Like recognizing that you deserve, uh, yeah. that it's okay if you take care of what your needs are.
0: That is a really nice compliment, yeah. Brian. I really like hearing okay. that. Thank I'm glad you. <laughs> you like,
1: no, I wasn't feeling that way at all. No, yeah, I that's think I,
0: that's been a cultivated thing because yeah. I was so no, no, I'm nothing unless I do stuff. Like I was so hard on myself yeah. and so brittle. Yeah. And so I, I like that you're hearing something different, you well, know, good. 30 years.
1: Um, I think it's really, you know, I want to wrap this up, but it, it, it's really easy for us to hear the word Olympian. It's one of the few words in, in the English language that immediately evokes a sense of perfection, performance, achievement, success that can lead us to judge that person a certain way, not necessarily badly, but just presume a lot. And I love how open and clear you were about that journey. Um, and, and all the things that it took to be an Olympian and it's not as simple and it's not just about waking up every day and working out and it all just sort of happened. There was so much more to it. The mental side of it. I mean, the fact that that really was your training for those last few months, because there was no physical other than some pool time. Mm -hmm. Um, So I really appreciate just how open you are with that. And and yeah, this clear sense of compassion you have for yourself. Um, And there's not an ounce of ego in that or egotism. (laughs) And that's so I do hear people push back. It's like, well, I don't want to be an egotist. Mm -hmm. Having compassion for yourself, recognizing your own needs and that you deserve these things is not the same as being boasty and. Um, demeaning to others. There's there's a there's a definite difference. So don't use that as an excuse not to respect yourself.
0: Right. It's kind of like the airlines, put your own oxygen mask on first. Yeah. You know, take care of your own needs, because the more you do that, the more you're gonna be a resource for other people. Yeah. But we're not trained that way. We're no. trained to sacrifice.
1: No. Yeah. And I will tell you, I know that saying and I hear it all the time. And I'm still pretty sure I would put my son's mask on <laughs> before mine.
0: Brian, don't. I
1: know, but he's so cute. <laughs> um, <laughs> I can hold my breath long enough. Um, it's never gonna happen. But yeah. Um Yeah. and and that's the thing, is like until you're in those moments, um, you may not know how strong you really are. Oh yeah. You have to yeah, you stay stay present with it. Um, Chris Murray, you're fantastic. I really, uh-huh. really appreciate the time you gave me today. Where can people find out more about your work, your book? Um, I'm gonna link to all this stuff, but Give us the lowdown. What's the best way to see what you up to
0: Well, we have our podcast, The Beauty of Conflict, where we talk about conflict at home or work or everywhere else because it's such a sticking point. Mm. Um, the, no our one webs-
1: suffers with that. It's, uh,
0: nothing at yeah, all. Yeah. And I mean, yeah, it's so funny. Um, our website is thriveinc, T-H-R-I-V-E-I-N-C.com, So you can hear about us and our services. And uh, we also have Beauty of Conflict as a website because it talks about our couples book that's just newly released.
1: Yeah, congratulations.
0: And thank you. It's a big deal. So we have a business book, The Beauty of Conflict, and a personal book, The Beauty of Conflict for Couples. And I think our next book is going to be The Beauty of Conflict Within, which is really about what you and I are talking about, yeah. this idea with this inner struggle. So, um, yeah. And on Facebook, Chris Marie Campbell and all those sorts of fun things. So
1: Cool. I will link to all of that. Um, thank It's fantastic. It's really, really great stuff. I've watched your – um, TED talk where you guys saying everything is awesome
0: yeah everything is awesome <laughs> <laughs> we had just watched the Lego movie though so it was yeah. perfect teamwork you know oh,
1: that's <laughs> thank great. You, Brian. yeah thanks so much for joining me and most importantly you remember the line you ready to help me close it out I am awesome today's a new day
0: go out and do it
1: oh it's perfect thank you so much <laughs> Chris Marie
0: thank you Brian
1: that's so great. I, I really found myself feeling what Chris was feeling. And of course I didn't and I can't. But she took me to that moment. And I thought about that darkness. And I thought about how we all go through things where we build them up. We put so much of ourselves into it. And then for it not to turn out the way we thought it would. When we've committed so much of our lives to it. It's crushing. Whether that's a physical feat like being the Olympics you know I, I shared my first marathon experience didn't go to plan despite five months of investment in it and obviously she had years in hers it was crushing and I felt I felt a loss I felt an identity question I felt so many things so I can only imagine when it's even bigger like that but we face those things all over the place work situations you know we're on this project we're putting our all into it it takes over our career and maybe it doesn't go well Maybe it's not received well. Maybe it's something smaller at work where it's like a big idea you have, a presentation you're making, and it's not resonating the way you thought it would. You know, for people who are doing things like this, putting out podcasts, speaking, writing, maybe it's that great idea that you think is going to change the world, that you think is just, it's amazing, and people will take to it, and no one clicks, no one responds, no one comments. Maybe it's in a relationship where you find yourself so many years in wondering, what's going on here? How did I get here? Why is this working this way? Why won't they just love me? That's one of the things that I address in the 50 100 solution that I talked about at the beginning of this episode. And with today being the launch day, you knew I was going to come back around to it. It's really important stuff. And Chris's episode her story, while it's not explicitly about relationships, relationships are another one of these places where we put so much of ourselves into it. They're a piece of our identity. How we relate to others helps establish our sense of ourselves. So when it's not going the way we want it to, it can be crushing. Check out the book. Again, it's just 99 cents on Kindle. Just go to 5075100.com and you can Click the little teal green button and get the book in whatever format you're most interested in having it in, and just take it in. Let it sit with you. Think about your relationships. Think about how this approach can help you in them. And I hope it does, because it's not just for you. It's for everyone around you. Or if you think there's someone in your life who could benefit from it, get them a copy. Because it'll help you indirectly by helping them. All right. Go check out Chris Marie, her work with Susan Clark at Thrive, Inc. You can grab her book, her TEDx. I'm going to link to all that in the show notes if you haven't checked that out already. Thank you so much for joining me. Remember to rate the show, subscribe to the show, share the show with someone you care about because there are people out there who need help, who need that inspiration to look within themselves and go out and do it. Thanks, everyone.